If you will take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I am privileged to bring the Word of God to you tonight. Uh, Excited about the message? I'll just let you know um, this message, the reason that we're here is because we've been preaching through the book of Ephesians upstairs with the teens for quite a while. I started last fall. In fact, I believe I preached the first message of that series down here just because I think Pastor Gilbert went out of town right in August as we were starting this. So now we're almost to the end of it, and you get to hear another message from it, but it'll be a great standalone, I think. It won't, won't need much to fill you in on context because it's a very familiar passage. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be taking a look at verse number 13 through verse number 18. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll start in verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil, evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of, plate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. If you would just bow with me in a brief word of prayer before we look at the message. Father, I just ask you to take this scripture, a scripture that we all know, and Lord, show us something tonight. Lord, about spiritual warfare that we can use. Lord, Satan, uh, he has no shortage of tactics. He has no shortage of ways that he would like to derail this church and every member in it. But, Lord, you've won the victory already, and I pray that we would see uh, just a few ways that we can overcome Satan and his wiles, his, his tactics against us. We pray that, pray, that you, pray that you would bless this message that you'd help me as I preach, in Jesus' name, amen. The armor of God. You know, spiritual warfare is all around us. Uh, Satan is tirelessly working to deceive, to destroy, to distort the word of God. And the soldier of the cross, Paul tells us right at the start, we have one job to do. Verse 14 says, stand therefore. Stand, therefore. You know, I really think that people today hear of spiritual warfare, and maybe even some people in our churches, and maybe even the thought has crossed your mind, because maybe it's crossed my mind before, that maybe, boy, all this talk about spiritual warfare, and boy, it's just, maybe it's just a bunch of paranoid Baptist preachers that just think the whole world's against them, and the whole world's trying to just derail what they're trying to do. Uh, Because... Let's face it, people can tend to have a victim mentality, can they not? Uh, we could all fall victim to that. But I want to, you to understand tonight, it's, it's not just a paranoia. It is not just something that we uh, harp on because we just, that's just something we do. No, spiritual warfare is something that happens every single day. And people can scoff, people can look at the physical around us and get so caught up in what's in front of our eyes that we forget the unseen, that we forget the spiritual battle that is taking place. In 1665, London was in the midst of the plague. 
And at that time, it was just awful. I, I read about it, and it just makes me understand that COVID was not quite, I'm, I'm not saying it was not significant, but COVID was not the plague that they had then. It was incredibly awful. Um, just people were dying faster than they could be buried. Bodies were piling up, literally, because they couldn't do nothing about it. It was spreading across the countryside because the folks in the city got so scared they thought maybe it was caused by bad air that they were breathing, so they spread out to the countryside to get fresh air and spread the plague all across the country, all across Europe and the known world at the time. Uh, just a horrible thing. Other people sealed themselves up in their homes uh, so that they would not let contaminated air in, and I'm sure you know that's the best thing you can do uh, when you've got something like that going around. And out of ignorance in all of this, they neglected the very basics of hygiene and cleanliness, and the streets ran with sewer and filth, the rats multiplied, and that is ultimately what we know now, spread the plague and caused it to be just so devastating to the world at the time. Now, if there had been someone in 1665 to go back and tell them all of this, everything you see happening around you in the world today is caused by something so small you can't see it. There are millions of germs that are being spread around and are causing all this death, all this pain. They would not have believed it. They would have laughed in someone's face had they told them that. In fact, there were some people who tried uh, a few hundred years later, and they had a very difficult time convincing the world of that. Since germs can't be smelled, they can't be touched, they can't be heard, they can't be tasted, no one suspected that something so insignificant as that would cause something so great as the plague. And today, likewise, people do not understand, they do not believe in the spiritual darkness that's around us because it cannot be seen and it cannot be touched. But there may be some, yeah, that dabble in the horoscope, in the darkness of the occult, but they would scoff at the idea that evil spirits are responsible for so much in our days today keeping people in bondage to sin and shame. People just don't believe that. They don't believe in spiritual darkness. But when we understand as a Christian the fact that everything around us is being orchestrated by God and at the same time being fought and being opposed by Satan, we can understand that there is a spiritual battle around us every single day. Can I just give you a, a brief Definition of what spiritual warfare is, spiritual warfare takes place when the power of God meets and, and comes against the work of Satan. When the power of God comes up against the work of Satan, spiritual warfare takes place. And can I tell you, that happens every single moment of every single day that we are here. It happens in our lives. It happens in everyone's lives all around the world. We find this passage in Ephesians, I find it interesting because if you go back just a little ways, we find this in the context of Ephesians 8, which says, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then a few verses later, he says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirit. Now that's something a Christian ought to do every day. Amen. You're going to face spiritual warfare if you walk in the Spirit. 
because the power of God is going to clash with the work that Satan's trying to do. We find it, this passage in the context of Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, which I won't get into, but it talks about, guess what, the marriage relationship. That is a prime spiritual battle, battleground for us. Ephesians 6, 1 and 4 talks about the parent-child relationship. And I can tell you by experience now that I've been in it just a little bit, and there's a battle taking place every single day for the hearts of our children. There is a battle taking place, really, in our hearts to stay the way we need to, to parent our children, to train them the way we should. We find it, lastly, in the context of Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, which talks about the employer-employee relationship, if you will, because at the time that was a slave and master relationship um, in their day. And so you find when Paul jumps into this topic of spiritual warfare, it comes right after he talks about everyday living, everyday relationships, everyday walking in the Spirit. Now, Paul chooses to talk about the topic of spiritual warfare. Uh, Forgive me if I don't think that's an accident. I don't believe that for a moment. We are going to need the power of God if we are going to live a life that pleases him every single day. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We need his power every day. If we're going to please the Lord every day, we need his armor. Verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the walls of the devil. And then in verse 12, he tells us, Hey, you need to realize who the enemy really is. In verse 12, he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I don't have time to get into what all of those mean, but I will give you this. We are not fighting against people. The battle is not fought because somebody did something mean to us, and so now that's spiritual warfare. No, the battle is unseen. The battle is between us and really God and his power and the work of Satan. Can I tell you, that tells me that we ought not to take spiritual warfare out on people. You know what I mean? I mean the coworker that you are with at work who tries to push you to do things and say things and think things that you ought not. We don't take that out on the person doing it. Satan and his demons are motivating that kind of behavior to put a stumbling block in our path. We ought to love that person and try to win them to Christ. Be a good testimony to them. But the, spirit, the battle is not with people. It is with the spiritual realm. And I think we need to remember that. Um, we need to be careful not to let the two get confused. So why are we exhorted to put on the whole armor of God? Let me just put it this way. I told this to the teens when I preached this passage last week. Because we need to get serious about who our enemy is. Look at it. It's not against flesh and blood. I can handle an enemy that's flesh and blood, but it's against principalities. That's just a scary-sounding word. But what it means is basically generals, governors, people high in authority, and he's talking in the spiritual realm. I do not want to know what it's like to come up against an angel of darkness that has power. And then he talks about against powers. That would be another level down, and the rulers of darkness would be 
just another level down in the hierarchy and the spiritual dark wickedness in high places would be the demons that Satan would send out to do his bidding. It is, it is not a joke. It is not a light thing to engage in spiritual warfare. And because of that, Paul says, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. We take it so that we can stand. Now, I'll be honest. I almost have a little bit of trouble with that. Because I always think, I want to say in my heart that, man, I'm going to just assault the gates of hell and we're going to, as a church, we're going to go out and we're going to attack Satan and his forces. But Paul says to us, you need to stand. That is not a sign of weakness, but it's not what we make it out to be sometimes. We are to stand and withstand. That means that we are to take what God has given us and the power, the tool that he's given us, the power of God that he's put within us in the Holy Spirit, and we are to resist Satan and not fall into temptation. That means we are to take what God has given us and we are to spread the gospel in the face of any adversity that may come our way. That means that we are to be faithful and we are to stand for what is right. To withstand is to set yourself against Can I say, while I said that we're not fighting people, if you're not willing to stand for the right, if you're not, excuse me, if you're not willing to stand against what's wrong, then you're not willing to stand for what's right. In order to stand for something, you must stand against something. We can't have politician-style Christians, if you know what I mean. Ephesians 4, 5 says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things. The truth in love. To stand, when he says, and having done all, to stand, it means to be ready, prepared, or expecting the battle to come. We are to be prepared for that day. We ought not be lifted up with pride. I really think if you'd been there the day that Israel passed over the Red Sea, Boy, there would have been a celebration, and the thought would have been, the battle is done. God has won us the victory. And that would have been true that day, but they weren't prepared for the future. And that's why 1 Corinthians 10, 12 tells us, Wherefore, let him that stinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. We must be prepared. God has given our armor freely to every Christian. It is our responsibility and our duty to put it on. So let's go through the armor of God. I'm going to be brief. We're going to cover every piece of the armor, but we're going to do it very so very quickly. And I want us to see what are the seven essentials, the seven essential pieces that we need to prepare for spiritual battle. Verse 14 starts it. He says, again, if you didn't get it, in case you didn't get it the first three times he said it, stand there for having your loins girt about with truth. Now, the loins girt about with truth has to do with a belt that they would wear that they could tuck the skirt of their robe into. It was important in their day because they wore long flowing robes. You could do no strenuous activity. You could fight no battle with your robes out all over your feet. You had to gird up your loins and you had to tuck them in your belt so that you could be ready, so that you could stand against the enemy. And that was why this is so important. Paul says that our belt... Our loins are to be girt about with truth. More than outward appearance, we need inward truth. 
That is where it starts. Oh, the outward's important, but if we have no inward truth, then we're just like the Pharisees. We're an empty tomb filled with dead men's bones. You know, Satan's attacks in the Garden of Eden centered around deception and distortion of the truth, the Word of God. When he attacked Christ and tempted him, and there was a spiritual battle that took place that day, he attacked and distorted the truth. And today is no different. Satan has invented every false religion, every cult, and I believe even he's gotten himself involved in politics today. I think that's pretty obvious because Satan loves to do anything he can to distort the truth. You know, the problem is possessing the truth is not enough. We have to be convinced of the truth. We have to hold to the truth. And dare I say, we have to preach the truth to our world. The devils know the truth, but it doesn't do them any good. We need to be convinced of it. And being convinced of the truth requires us to act on truth. If we will do that, the first step of our spiritual battle will be won. The second thing he tells us is to stand having on the breastplate of righteousness. The first thing we need is truth, and the second thing is righteousness. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, one of the most effective ways for Satan to put aside a Christian and take him out of the spiritual battle is to get him involved in sin. And it doesn't have to be what we think of as, oh, they fell into sin. (laughs) Oh, sure, he would love to do that if he can. But what Satan would also love to do is get you involved in some little thing that will prick your conscience, some small thing that will come between you and your relationship with your Heavenly Father and cause you to be a Christian that is alone, a Christian without the power and the blessing of God. If he can do so, he's won the battle already. Satan's power, though, was broken at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when he tells us, put on the breastplate of righteousness, it just harkens back to something he said a little bit earlier in the book of Ephesians when he said, put off the old man and put on the new man. That is what we do. We put on not ourselves, we put on the breastplate of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we say, Satan, you can come at me with your accusations, you can come at me with your distortion of the truth, but I am standing on the truth of God's word and I am standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Do you understand as a Christian, in order for Satan to have a legitimate accusation to throw your way, Jesus Christ would have to become a sinner in order for an accusation to stand up against you in God's throne room. That is quite a high standard And for me to take that righteousness, let me also say, for me to take the righteousness of Jesus Christ and put it on and then say, I'm going to go indulge in my my sin over here. Does that fit the idea of a soldier? Does that fit the idea of a Christian who loves the Lord? No, no. But yet, Satan will tempt you to do just that. Be careful that you don't allow yourself 
to become the instrument of unrighteousness. Can we be such a thing as a child of God? Well, listen to Romans 6.13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. We must be careful because Satan would love, love nothing more than to take the soldier of Jesus Christ and use him for his own purposes. We have a chance We have the opportunity through the power of God to be instruments of righteousness. Let's choose to do that. We have to choose to yield to the devil. Let's not go there. And then he says, we need to stand with truth, with righteousness. And the next thing he tells us is that we need to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, I always have heard this preached and heard it emphasizing the gospel, which is extremely important here, don't get me wrong. But I would like to emphasize one other word to you in this passage, and that is that we are to have our feet shod with the preparation. Well, what does that mean? That means literally preparedness. It doesn't mean anything other than what it says. You know, when we go to another person's house, as a common courtesy, most of the time, you'll remove your shoes, right? At least if you remember to do so. I'm, I'm kind of bad about it, right? Because I grew up and we didn't do it in our house, so but most of the time, if we want to be really polite and we, we really want to make sure that we're being showing correct courtesy, we remove our shoes. That signals that we're going to sit down, we're going to relax, we're trying to keep their house clean, of course, as a side, um, but we're going to sit down, relax, and converse. Now, does that sound like a soldier who is ready to fight and who's prepared? I don't think so. A soldier would not remove his shoes. A soldier would be prepared if he is heading to a battle. The preparation here is preparation for anything that would befall us. And it is a preparation that comes out of or is a result of the gospel. The preparation that we have is because of the gospel that's in our hearts. You see, it's a preparation that's a readiness that we have to share the gospel. It's a readiness to defend the gospel. It's a readiness to live out the gospel in our lives. And the Roman soldier would have spikes, would have cleats, if you will, on the bottom of their shoes to help them stand in those days so that they would not be pushed back. And that is the picture that we have when it says, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I am prepared with the knowledge of what Jesus did on the cross. With the fact that he was buried and that he rose again and he's already won the victory. So when I go into the spiritual battle, I understand that it's already fought. It's already won. It is mine to claim the victory through Jesus Christ. And that is the preparation of the gospel of peace. In verse 16, he says, above all, taking the shield of faith. The shield of faith is an amazing thing. I would love to handle one of the shields that they used to have back in these days because the shields they had in those days were these kind. They were the kind that would cover an empire soldier's body. And by locking them together and forming a wall, they could literally stand while the enemy shot and hurled stones and arrows and spears at them and stand and withstand that. And not fall, have to fall back. In fact, by the, end, by the time the enemy was done with all their arrows and they were out was the time they could then attack. And so that's why he says, hey, 
take the shield of faith because you're going to need it to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Satan has darts. Satan has attacks. What are those things, you say? Those would be temptations. They would be doubts, fears, accusations. They would be things, even circumstances he can throw in our life to say, to just try to make a Christian doubt the Lord for just a moment. Because if he could do that, he can gain an advantage in the battle. The shield was an enormous impenetrable object, and our faith is to be that enormous impenetrable object. It's not because my faith is so great, but it's because of what my faith is in. Because my faith is in the power of God. My faith is placed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in the truth of God's word. My faith grounds me to the rock that is higher than I. And I stand in that faith so that when Satan comes, we can withstand him. When we get to the next verse, he says, and take the helmet of salvation. And it just gets better, doesn't it? We've got the word of God to stand with. We've got the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. We have the gospel message to take with us wherever we go. We have a shield of faith to protect us should we run across anything that would try to harm us. And then he says, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, I just I have to paint a little bit of a picture in my mind. I just can't imagine that this is just a regular old helmet that's half rusted over and just sitting there. Well, I think of this as a helmet that is made out of the finest jewels. It is made out of the shiniest of metals. And it's got the biggest plume on it that you could ever see. Because this helmet identifies me with Jesus Christ himself. And when I put that helmet of salvation on my head, I am claiming to the world, I am his and he is mine. I'm a soldier of the cross. Now the helmet was for protection as well, but I just have to say, wow, the helmet of salvation. Note what it protects. It protects the most vital part of a soldier, his head. And it protects the most vital part of a Christian. Christ has bought and redeemed my soul. That's my mind, my will, my emotions. He has taken me and who I am, and he has bought and paid for me. And he's given me his helmet of salvation to secure that and say, take this helmet, you can never have anything happen to you as long as you're wearing it. I find it very interesting when he says, and take the helmet of salvation. Because when he said in verse 13, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, he used a word that means take it up to you. In other words, it's sitting there. I've, I've left it there for you. Now take it and use it, right? But when it says, and take the helmet of salvation, it's a word that can be translated almost to give a gift, to give to someone. And I am to receive that from his hand and receive the helmet of salvation. This is not something that God left lying there and said, if you can lift it up onto your head, if you can just get a hold of it, you can wear that thing and you'll be saved. No, he hands it to us. In fact, he places it on our heads because we're unable to do it ourselves. 
When God has done that for you and me, can I tell you there's nothing can get rid of it. God has given us the helmet of salvation. What a privilege he's given us. And then it doesn't stop there. We've got two more things. And, and really, I, I always read this passage and I think, well, there's one more thing. But really, there's two more. We'll get to the second in a moment. But he says, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What's a soldier without a weapon, right? We've got a weapon that won't run out of ammo. We have a weapon that will, that's blade will never be dull. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, the word of God allows you and I to navigate the relationships of life with the grace that we need. It allows us to stand against Satan and to hold up our sword and say, you don't fear me, but you sure fear this. If Jesus Christ could take the sword of the Spirit and show Satan, I have the word of God on my side, and Satan backed off, I think it's good enough for me too. The word of God is all that we need. It cleanses us, it sanctifies us, it nourishes us, it abides in us. 1 John 2.14 tells us, And the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. We overcome him through the word of the Lord. By the way, that's exactly how Christ himself will defeat Satan in the book of Revelation. It says, And a sharp sword goeth out of his mouth. That is exactly how God will defeat Satan as well. And then we come to the last thing Paul mentions. And it's not something we normally would put with the armor of God. But if you look at what it says, coming down through here, especially in the original language, it seems to point to this as being the final thing that Paul gave to the Ephesian church. To say, when you fight your battles, when you come into spiritual warfare, you need to remember one more thing. He says in verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. The final essential is prayer. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And without prayer, we have no access to the power of God. We need prayer to stand against Satan. He says prayer and supplication. Prayer would be the asking. Supplication would be the idea of getting on your knees and begging God. Lord, I need your strength. I need your help. And I'll be honest, I've had to do that. And I should do it a lot more than I do. But there are times when you come to the end of yourself, you're fighting a battle, whether with yourself or with the circumstances in your life, and you need the Lord to step in. Boy, praying Always with all prayer and supplication. That is the answer. Go to him in prayer. And you may pray and feel that nothing's happening. Nothing's being answered. But can I tell you, there is a battle being fought that we cannot see. And that prayer of, a, of an effectual, fervent, righteous, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, God has promised it availeth much. William Cooper a, a hymn writer in our books, wrote several well-known songs, said this, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. There's not a truer word you could say. Interestingly enough, prayer for victory is not mentioned here, though. 
Prayer uh, for protection from the spiritual battle is not mentioned, but one prayer request is mentioned. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, I don't think that Paul meant that you just need to pray, sit down and pray every day. Lord, help all the Christians in the world. Now, I think that's why he's given us a local church. God has given us a local church so that we can lift each other up in the spiritual battle. Can I just encourage you to do something? Pray for your pastor. Pray for your pastor. Satan is fighting him every single day in ways that we will never see. He is fighting battles in his mind that we will never know. Well, are you sure that Satan's really... Every time the power of God clashes with the work of Satan, there's a spiritual battle taking place. And our pastor is a, to be a man of God. He's to be a man of God's word. He's to be a shepherd that has the heart of Christ show, and shows that to you as a church. Can I tell you there's a spiritual battle that takes place with that every single day? We need to pray for our pastor. Can I tell you as well, pray for your spouse. Pray for your children. Pray for your coworkers. That God would help them in the spiritual battle. I, I fear that I am too physically oriented when it comes to prayer sometimes. I am too worried about somebody that has cancer. And, and that is a horrible thing and it needs prayer. I, but I'm too worried about the physical needs of so-and-so and the other person that, man, they need a need this to happen in their life. And, and I'm so worried about that that I forget to pray for the spiritual needs of people and the spiritual battles that they are facing right now that I may never know. Pray for your church brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for each other. Lift each other before the throne room of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication, watching thereunto with all appearance and perseverance and supplication for all saints. And I'll leave you with this. Put on the whole armor of God. Stand against the wiles of the devil. That was what Paul said to the Ephesian church. Stand therefore. Be ready. Be prepared. Because the spiritual battle is being fought right now. Right here. Let's pray.